the Jesuits of Canada and the United States, this is AMDG, and I'm Eric Clayton. Thanksgiving is a time of tradition. How we celebrate the holiday today probably has a lot to do with how we celebrated the holiday growing up. The foods we place on the table, the special napkins we pull out of the closet, that signature cocktail we always serve our guests, the dessert, pies and brownies and more. Take a moment, how much of your Thanksgiving experience reflects the Thanksgivings that have come before, perhaps even before you were born? Tradition is important, and it forms us in countless ways. But sometimes traditions can box us in. Sometimes they limit our horizons, keep us trapped in the old ways of doing things. That's something that our guest today thinks a lot about. Today's conversation is with Shannon Evans, a longtime contributor to Jesuits.org and the author of a new book, Rewilding Motherhood, Your Path to an Empowered Feminine Spirituality. This is a wide-ranging conversation. We talk about images of God that are helpful and that are limiting for mothers, the hyped-up masculinity of St. Ignatius's writings and how we might integrate them in a healthy and hopeful way, patriarchy and systemic oppression, and we talk about Thanksgiving traditions. At this point, if you're not a mother, you might be thinking, eh, this isn't the episode for me. Well, not so fast. This is a challenging and important conversation for all of us. What I find in Shannon's writing and thinking is a challenge to liberation, a liberation from those modes of thinking and acting that keep us from achieving our full God-given potential. We do well to remember that we go to God together as a community. And if any of us is bound up and held back, well, then all of us are affected. Our entire community of God's family is kept from achieving God's great dream. And so even if you're not a mother, you'll be challenged by this episode to reflect on your relationship to those who are, and on your relationship with yourself as a member of God's family. Uh, two more notes before we begin. Sign up for our Advent series. Head over to Jesuits.org Advent. Uh, you'll receive daily reflections on finding God in contemporary stories. It's going to be a lot of fun. And finally, Happy Thanksgiving. Here's Shannon. All right, Shannon Evans, welcome to AMDG. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. I know, so excited. So, you know, we're uh, we're on the the precipice of Thanksgiving. So, to kick us off, maybe you can tell us a little bit about um, what Thanksgiving traditions do you do in, in your household. What kind of things have you uh, carried over from your own childhood? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, we m- my parents are both Southern, like to the core, both raised in Mississippi, and so the food is really important. I mean, to all Americans, Thanksgiving food is really important, you know, but it's always been like an event. My mom is quite like the Southern hostess. Um, and I have not followed in her footsteps. <laughs> that I'm not a great cook, but we, we muddle along. Um, but one thing that my parents did, um, the years that we weren't like traveling to grandparents, if we were at home, they would always invite people that didn't really have anywhere else to go. And um, they they are uh, wonderful like that. And so my like Thanksgiving, Easter, Christmas memories are all like these random, <laughs> random <laughs> groups of people. 
um, you know, with like varying degrees of um, like social ability and uh, just uh, just quirky. And so it was really, it's really precious memory. And so we've, my husband and I have tried to carry that over in the, the years that we're not traveling. We try to invite people um, who wouldn't otherwise have a a family to share Thanksgiving with. And that's been a really fun experience. But this year we're, we're traveling to Mississippi. So we're doing the whole Southern cuisine and staying at my uncle's cabin and should be fun. Nice. That's awesome. I guess. So if your parents are big cooks, does, does cooking preparation begin like days and days in advance? Oh yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. And not my parents, just my mom. Just your mom. <laughs> my right. dad is a very classic <laughs> Southern man who can only cook like oatmeal. But, but he's getting better at helping with like the cleanup afterwards. But yeah, my mom starts days in advance. And my grandma, actually, I think my sister was talking to her and she started like last week and she's just putting stuff in the freezer. I know. I'm just in awe. I, I mean, I, I'm in awe that my grandmother did the same thing as well. And um, but they always had like this industrial sized freezer. Yes, like if I started too. cooking in advance, I'd be putting the food out on the on the porch because there'd right. be nothing, nowhere to put it. Yeah, these That's women awesome. like come ready. They know how to do it. They know what they gotta have on hand, and they they are amazing. That's awesome. Well, I wanna I wanna seize on this this idea of traditions, right, and things that we carry with us uh, from our childhood. Because in your writing, a lot of your writing, uh, you reflect on images of God uh, that may may have been helpful, right, when we were younger, uh, and may not be as helpful now as we as we mature in our faith. Things we might have to let go of or or uh, evolve into. So I wonder if if you might share kind of in, again in this in this uh, the sense of traditions, things to to grow and evolve. Um, in your experience, how, how does this idea of this unhelpful or helpful images of God um, play out in your writing and your work? Yeah. You know, one thing I've kind of had to work through in adulthood is kind of this this childhood idea of God as being this this almost human like being in the sky or really far away that we sort of access at, you know, um, at very formal times of worship or prayer, uh, and we kind of come and go <laughs> to this person. And so, in adulthood, I've like I've had to kind of break that down, and it's been such a beautiful realization of, you know, as the Jesuits say, God is in all things, right? And and so finding access to to God in um, things that I. I didn't formally expect to find. So in Thanksgiving preparation, say in, um, in cooking meals for a family or in dealing with, um, you know, the influx of relatives with all their, you know, family craziness that comes and finding God in people, you know, finding God in that present. And so for me, that has been like one of probably one of the most transformative things about my spirituality is, is kind of going from like God is, way out there to God is right here. So, so close and within me. Um, yeah. And, and my family too, my, we have this joke about, um, when I was a kid, I was like really insistent that God was a man because you never heard of a girl named God. And like my dad still tells everybody that story because he thinks it's hilarious. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but like, as I've unpacked that, I'm like, wow, I like, that's a really, and I write about this in my book, but I was like, that's a really, um, 
kind of tough pill to swallow for a little girl to be like, well, God can't be like me. God is like my brother or, you know, God is like um, my dad or like the men in my life, but God can't be like my mom. You know, God can't be like me. And, I, and I'm sort of still on this journey of unpacking um, how that formed sort of my, my idea of God and my ability to um, truly come to God with my full vulnerable and authentic self as a woman. Um, so those are, that's another thing that sort of had to, had to be broken down over the years. I remember that story in your book. Um, it, cause it, 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 it resonated with me, particularly raising two young girls and mm -hmm. thinking like, Oh man, like when, like you said, when does this, does that happen? When does that start? How do you, how do you accompany people kind of away from that? Yeah. I, I wonder though, as you're thinking about kind of the God and all things idea, um, it, it, have you have you been surprised by a place where you've encountered God and and in what what did you what piece of God did you encounter and did you learn about through that mm. surprising moment honestly the first thing that comes to mind is when I was a new mom um, and our first child was adopted and the first couple of years was really really difficult because there was a lot of trauma-based behavior and a lot of um Neuro neurodivergent behavior that we didn't understand at the time. And there was, it was just really hard and really complicated and it felt really lonely and isolating and, um, socially isolating. And I think a lot of parents with special needs kids, um, can relate to that, uh, this sense of, um, loneliness and, and social isolation. So we got involved with this Catholic worker house and it, you know, we kind of started out of like, oh, we'll just like go to the dinners like once a week. And at least it's, you know, people. And it ended up, um, I made friends with these two women who were in their 50s. Um, both were mothers with grown children who lived far away. And the way that they came in and mothered me as I mothered my son in this really painful season like totally rocked my world. Um, and, and I should say the, these women, um, at the time and maybe currently still, um, were unhoused. They were living like on the streets. One was living in, in her car. Um, they had had a really tough life. And so like on the outside, I think my assumption was that I, I had things to give them or I had things to offer. I, you know, I could invite them into my house on cold days or whatever, but really what I found was that I experienced God in a way through them that was really unique that I hadn't experienced even from my own mother who was wonderful. Um, but this, this sense of giving to me from, from a place of inner poverty, like, um, mm. from a place of knowing how little they had, but just bringing their full presence, it, it just, it was so prophetic in my life. Like it spoke to me so much of, um, how God appears in surprising ways and, and the different forms that God could take that, that we assume, um, that, that we assume isn't so, you know, and it's, um, it's something that's really stuck with me and kind of changed the way that I see people and changed the way that I tried to be in the world myself. Um, so that's what comes to mind when, when you ask that question. Yeah. And your, and your answer makes me think, think of two things. One, I've, I've been listening to a lot of podcasts about like work and the changing dynamics of work and productivity and, um, and how like, you know, the pandemic has changed all of that. But, but I think that, you know, and again, like how we, we our identities are so tied up with, you know, what we do, what we produce. Um, and we forget that, like, 
you know, there's infinite value in just us, our presence, who we are, like what we bring to the table. And I think that that story exemplifies that perfectly. Like, you know, and you're surprised people don't need to do or, or, or make, yeah. you can just exist in your presence and like that's enough and, right. and more so. Yes. And yeah, I mean, and, and it's so interesting because one of the reasons that, that they were able to be so present for me was because they, they weren't tied up in like a nine to five job and they didn't have this huge social network that was keeping them busy with, you know, events on their calendar. They were just, you know, so present and available. And it really spoke to me a lot too about, you know, what we value as a culture and how we can put our identity and how busy we are or, you know, um, which is terrible. Like, like, why do we think it's better to, to be unavailable, you know, and kind of trying to break that down in my own life and in my own heart too. Yeah, no, I know. It's always so easy to be, oh, I'm so busy. I got so much going on. I can't. And that's just like our default. Um, it reminds me again of, <coughs> excuse me, of, um, Negation and difference, right? And I think that the more, the less we have, the more available we are because we're not tied up in protecting or guarding, you know, guarding our investments, guarding our things, guarding our whatever. We can just be available. Yeah. And then uh, the story as you were describing it made me think of the, was the scripture in the Old Testament where Abraham kind of uh, and Sarah kind of, uh, they welcome the three angels unknowingly, right? Yeah. And I always, we have an icon upstairs that has the three kind of three visitors is called or something. We that, have that one text. too. Do you have it? Yes. I, I just love it because it's just, it's just a, it's such a good image of like, you got to be available and hosp hospitable. And it's right. so hard to, I mean, at least I'll speak for myself. I won't speak for you, but it's so hard to always be available and hospitable. But then here comes God like to the door or, or to the, you know, to the, to the, to the lunch table or, or yeah. whatever it is. And am I available to, to meet God? Yeah. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's get into your book. Um, and, uh, we've already mentioned it briefly, um, uh, but it's called Rewilding Motherhood, Your Path to an Empowered Feminine Spirituality. And I want to talk about that word rewild. Mm. What, what does that mean uh, for you in the context of, of this book and what you were trying to, um, to get across? So I was not familiar with the concept of rewilding before I started searching for a title for this book. And I was kind of just casting the net wide, trying to think um, I love metaphor. And so, you know, I was like gravitating towards what kind of metaphor could I pull in for this title that my publisher would actually accept, you know? Um, and I came across the, the term rewilding and I just fell in love because it, what it is, is, um, a very intentional process that, uh, naturalists or environmentalists will undertake with a particular piece of land um, to that has been harmed by human uh, development or human intervention in some way. And so they nurse it back to health by basically removing all of the harmful stuff that that human beings have done and letting the land heal itself through its own process. And sometimes that means reintroducing species. Sometimes that even means reintroducing predators, um, which so sometimes it just feels so counterintuitive. And honestly, it looks less beautiful. Like it looks it looks wild. It looks unkempt. Um, but when when you measure, you know, the the um, I'm just blanking, basically, when you take the measurables of what makes a piece of land healthy, you can see that that the land is flourishing, it's vibrant, it's as it should be as God intended kind of um, restoring itself. And so 
I just thought that was the perfect metaphor for what I wanted this book to be because motherhood is something that I feel like we have put a lot of human intervention onto, um, you know, every, and depends on the circle that you're in could be, could mean different things to different people. Um, but specifically in the Christian circle, there's a lot of, um, kind of stereotypes of what the ideal mother is and what, what a good woman should be. And so I just wanted to kind of invite women to more inner freedom to explore, what it looks like just between them and God for motherhood to be a spiritual path and for, a, for it to be a place that could be healing for their spiritual life. That's beautiful. I, I love that. I, I also was not familiar with the, uh, with the term rewilding and, um, but the cover of your book is like, so, so cool. Um, that, that I, I now, now listen to you describe it. You're like, Oh my gosh, like, yeah, you can kind of see it just jump off the page. Yeah. Um, that's beautiful. So, so you talked a little bit of, obviously about, you know, this, this book is written for, for mothers in, in general, right? Talk more about kind of who you're imagining when you're, when mm. you're writing, right? You're writing for someone. Yes. Um, so who did you have in your mind uh, and what, what did you most want them to, to walk away with to, to mm. what was the thing you were like, I got to say this to this person? Yeah. You know, it's, it is a book that is, I have found to be a little divisive. Some people like really don't like it, but I think when I was writing it, I knew it's not for everybody. So this is the book for moms who have not found themselves represented in Christian motherhood books, who feel like they read a, a book about motherhood and they're wanting to be inspired and they're wanting it to resonate, but it just feels like it misses the mark, that they don't feel seen, they don't feel understood. Um, they feel like they're kind of being reduced to a stereotype or reduced to um a, a position that they that they fill a role that they fill rather than themselves as a person as a woman and so um certainly i was thinking of you know women raising small children who um are kind of in those years maybe past like the 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 newborn stage but kind of in this place of now what now who am i in this new place in life and and kind of trying to figure that out but um, interestingly, another demographic kept coming to mind um, while I was writing, and it, it's, it was empty nesters. I kept thinking mm -hmm. of these women, um, some who I know and some who I imagine myself to be one day, um, when your children leave the house or, or are about to leave the house, and you're kind of um, having to face yourself without them again. So like your identity is no longer really in being a mom. Like that's, that's will always be a part of who you are, but it's not necessarily what fills up the minutia of your day. And, and it kind of, I imagine, and I've heard from women reflected that it can be, um, almost another, another huge, uh, life change, just like becoming a mother for the first time. So I, yeah, I was, um, was definitely thinking of them a lot and wanting it to to speak to that sense of again finding um, your true identity as as um, someone in communion with God apart from any role that you serve and just seeing the essence of the woman inside and not um, not the part that you play in your family. As I was as I was reading through um, your book, I, you told the story about this pelican necklace early on in the book. Um, which I thought, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but if, for, in, for me, that, that really, um, kind of summed up like the, the real like nugget of, of kind of one of your bigger theses, I think in the book. So would you mind kind of mm. sharing that, that here with, with us now? Yeah. Some of the listeners might be familiar. Um, there's an ancient 
uh, it was originally a pagan symbol and, and was kind of adopted by Christians of um, a pelican mother pecking her breast and feeding her babies her blood in times of famine. And I honestly have no idea if this is actually true of pelicans or not, but, <laughs> but it's the legend, right? Um, and so Christians, early Christians adopted this because it's such a clear and beautiful picture of the Eucharist and of Christ offering his own flesh and blood for us um, to nourish, nourish us as children. Um, and so I, I had been, like I said, my first child was adopted and I was preparing to give birth um, for the first time to our second child. And as I said, motherhood had been really difficult for me and I was kind of facing this, this um, physical marathon. I was birthing, you know, um, at a birthing center. So I wasn't planning to, to do an epidural or anything. So I was kind of gearing up. And I told my husband, like, I really want this necklace. So I got a necklace with the pelican piercing her chest and feeding her young the blood. And for about a year, I wore it every day and it just gave me so much comfort. And I think it really assigned a lot of dignity to what I felt like I was doing with my life, which was sacrificing, laying it down, um, learning those early years of motherhood or, or, you know, human beings are not wired <laughs> to sacrifice ourselves easily, you know? So it was like a cross when you, when you become a parent, I think, involved fathers feel that I'm sure you felt that too. Mm. Um, eventually I lost the necklace and I still have no idea what happened to it. And I still kind of wonder if that was like a God thing because I, we moved out of the house, we cleaned the whole house and I never found this necklace. Um, and I kind of realized just as I was writing this book that that was actually exactly what I needed. Like it was actually as it should be because every woman has to learn how to do that, to bleed herself for her children. But then at some point we have to learn when to stop bleeding because we can't bleed forever and hope to live. You know, we've got to, um, we've got to find that, that place between self-sacrifice and also um, protecting our own boundaries and our own needs and upholding those as, as really right and good in and of themselves too. I love that story. And it's so beautifully told. Um, and, and again, I, yeah, I think it, it gets to this crux of, of your book of, of again, as you're, as you're describing, you know, how do you, uh, it's lack of a better word, live in right relationship with all the identities, um, that, that you have as a, as a person, how do you, how do you share that with, you know, mothers that, you know, either personally or just mothers that you're kind of, or just women in general, that you're working with in your own prayer and your own work. How, how do you, What's the experience of, of having that kind of conversation about right relationship with, with self? I think that the self-sacrifice and self-giving aspect of motherhood and just family life is, is obviously a call of Christ. Like that's obviously something um, that Jesus modeled for us that we know is right and good and necessary for the Christian life. Um, but for most women I know in Christian circles, that isn't so much, I mean, it's hard certainly, but that's not, um, that's not something that they question. They, they assume that that's part of the gig, that that's part of um, what Christ calls them to. But the harder part I think is convincing women that, that God also wants their full sense of self, that God also values um, their boundaries and their needs and their, their, um, nourishment of the soul to grow. So you kind of have to hold these tensions 
of, you know, what is your ultimate identity? It's not mom, you know, that's part of who you are. That's a really important part of your life, but your ultimate identity is a child of God. And so like, how do we invest the time and the energy, sometimes the money necessary to continue to grow our own spiritual life, um, our own health, mental health, emotional health, all of those things are a part of the whole, a part of what God wants for us. And so, um, yeah, I think, I think really what I found is having to, um, <laughs> having to pull women more in that direction and say, it's okay to not, um, not be, you know, at the beck and call of your family 24 seven. It's hard. I, I always think, um, of, of well, the good, it's a good Samaritan. Love your neighbor as yourself. And I always feel like we forget the, um, as, as ourselves, yeah. part, right? Like you can't love your neighbor as yourself if you don't have a proper understanding of how to love yourself, you know? Yes. And, um, and that plays out obviously radically differently in all sorts of different contexts, but ultimately that, that, like that place to start for me, as I reflect on, it's like, well, how am I, how am I like right sizing my relationship with myself before I go out and then try to love others? Right. Um, another thing in your book that I really love, um, and I think it's a theme that really goes all throughout. Uh, are you a reflection on on on, uh, you know, on patriarchy in general? But I think you're you're talking about. Um, well, you, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but, but what I'm pulling up from a lot of your words is this, this idea of liberation. How are we liberating um, women from you know images of God that might hold hold them back from um, ideas around identity that might um, hold women back? Uh, so can you you just kind of in broad strokes sketch out um, these, these structures and systems that many of us may not even see um, without without having someone kind of really open our eyes to them? So d describe them to us so we yeah. can uh, we can talk about them. Yeah, I mean, this is just something in the past couple of years that's really been hitting me and, and um, being something that I feel an invitation from God to explore uh, in a very Ignatian sense, exploring the, the response in myself when I um, when I think about these things. But and then I think that, you know, from there, really um, engaging conversation in the church at large, which is part of this book, part of the point of the book. Um, but yeah, like the, like I said, talking about, um, God as father, but not, but, but being uncomfortable with the language of God as mother. And I, um, but also just in the Christian spaces, you know, there's, it's always, the language is always masculine. Um, the images of God, Jesus was obviously in a male body. Um, but that that's the image that we have. And I think that we really, um, underestimate what that does to women to be surrounded by um, language and imagery that is entirely masculine when we're talking about God and in our sacred spaces and for us to not feel ourselves represented. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think that <laughs> part of me is like wanting to want, like, even as I'm talking, like wanting to argue with, <laughs> present the other side and then argue with it. But I think, go um, for it. I won't stop you. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I know I, I've certainly, am well familiar with all of the criticisms that, you know, people say, well, Jesus taught us to pray our father, not our mother. And I always say, well, he didn't say don't pray our mother. It was just right. a format that he gave us. And I think, um, you know, I, I've even read some, you know, theologians say that it's really actually more of like our parents or our, um, 
you know, birther, I think is, is the word that, that someone used at one point. And so I'm not a theologian, but I do find it fascinating how Christian culture kind of picks and chooses, um, how to interpret scripture when in reality in Christian scholarship, even in specifically Catholic scholarship, there's such a wide range of, um, of thought and opinion and biblical interpretation. And I just feel like if people knew really that, that there is permission to explore outside of what might feel comfortable, it, it's a healthy and healing thing for us, not as only as individuals, which it is, but also as a community, also as a, as a universal church to have that balance between, um, the maternal images of God and the maternal, um, voice of God, and also obviously the paternal as well and, and the fatherhood of God. And I, for the sake of clarity, like I, I am not at all like wanting the church to be matriarchal or wanting to push men out of positions of authority. But I think we clearly are seeing in our, in the institutional structure, a lot of flaws of, of having an absence of women and an absence of the female voice and presence in the church. And so wanting that to be more equal so that our system is more balanced and also us as individuals in our spiritual life can be more balanced. Yeah, no, I agree. Absolutely. And I also wonder about, um, I think, you know, the need to obviously, you know, put, put Jesus's words in, in historical context always, right? Like history, history matters, time and place matters. God entered into our story at a, at a very specific time. Um, and I think, I think you wrote, I think this was you in your book somewhere reflecting on the word, like labors, God labors. Yeah. I, I just, I loved that image. Um, I think I've used that word in my own writing now and again, but now when I write it, I'm like, Oh, like it just, it just brings such a like. Why wouldn't you want that additional richness and yeah. and and like, you know, it's very it's very beautiful. Um, so so one of the other things I, you know, as, as I was reading your words, and obviously I I don't think I am the target audience of your book necessarily, but um, but but I'm I'm thinking about kind of our our church's uh, history, you know, usage of the word liberation, and and when we try to liberate, you know, from from unjust structures or or uh, we don't just liberate the oppressed, we also liberate the oppressor, right? Because we assume we know that that sin contaminates all of us, and we yeah. all need to be liberated. And so, as I was thinking about your reflections on um, on patriarchy, and obviously, you know, I, I'm a I'm a white guy, so. Um, um, my, my, you know, where I kind of fall in that, in that system, you know, there's an opportunity for me too to, to be liberated and to, mm-hmm. um, I don't want to say benefit from, but, but, but we all benefit when everybody is free, yeah. uh, you know, free to be their full, uh, human selves. Do you, as you, and just, I just want to know, I, I think we're always stuck on this. I win, you lose attitude. You know, yeah, it's always right? that. Mm. It's just so like inbred into our culture. Um, it doesn't have to be that way. And I think that's kind yeah. of what our faith calls us to like, I win and you win. You win and yes. I win. It's like, no one has to lose. We can all we can all win and we go to God together. Win. So, do when you when you talk to folks and when you're um, interacting with folks, do you find that people are responsive to that idea that that we all benefit from a full and flourishing society, or how do you have those conversations? Yeah, I mean, I think it really depends on the person. Some people are um, can see that readily and some people feel defensive and um I think we see that in a, in a lot of ways and a lot of social issues you know speaking also as a white person of like this kind of um 
fear of of losing the majority status, losing power. If, you know, if I admit that my black brothers and sisters have had less power, does that mean that I'm that's going to cost me something to give them more? You know, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we have a lot of those. um, We have a lot of that inside of us. So I can certainly commiserate with the feeling, even though like with the feeling that men have when women or or men begin critiquing patriarchy, right? There's a lot of men who kind of get like, uh, where is this going? I feel defensive and uncomfortable. Um, but what I think we see that's really beautiful is that, you know, patriarchy is not, not healthy for men either because it kind of um, puts this, it puts a lot of cultural pressure on men. It, it puts pressure to be the... Um, exclusive providers in a family when maybe that's not the best fit for a family. It puts um, a lot of pressure to kind of stuff emotions and repress and, and um, not cry. I mean, you know, we have all of these boys don't cry and um, you know, or you run like a girl or things that are supposed to, to diminish someone's personhood or abilities in my own family life as my husband and I have kind of been, tackling this at the same time the past few years and kind of really asking hard questions about the assumptions that we made when we built our family, um, we kind of realized we were in a place in parenthood where I was kind of going stir crazy being at home and I wanted to work more and he was not really happy um, working so much and felt like he wasn't ever really getting to be with the kids. So we swapped places and I started working full time and he started working part time and, and caregiving more. And for us, it's been a really healthy thing. And I think one of the most interesting things is um, that, that he is so much more mentally and emotionally healthy than he was before. And I'm sure at some point he'll go back and he'll work full time probably when the kids are older. Um, but it's, it's noteworthy to me how he began healing from this effects Mm. of a patriarchal system that assumed that he would always work full time, no matter what, because that's what a good father and husband does. And anything less than that means something is wrong with him. And so to see him kind of freed to become, happier and more whole has been, um, has kind of proven the point for us. We've really seen it on a personal level. Yeah. I mean, that's a perfect example of like, everyone gets liberated. You know, everyone is, and gets, it's the freedom to, to choose and live and find their full, their full potential. Yeah. It also, you also, you're, 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 made me think back to our beginning of our conversation where it's like, you know, who's, who's able, the more you have, the, the more you grip to. Whereas if you mm. kind of let go of power and privilege and, and stuff, you have less to hold to, you're more available and more open. So that you know, holds true with material possessions and as much as it does with, with power. Yeah, so true. So let's, uh, let's return to our image of the Thanksgiving table because you, um, you had a great chapter on hospitality in this book that made me feel better about my own <laughs> inability <laughs> to kind of be out doing the Lord's work in the, in the day to day. Right. Um, so, so talk about how, how do you find, uh, you guys are able to live out, uh, called a hospitality in this particular season of, uh, of your life. Mm. We've spent so long wishing that we could do more, you know, um, we, we were 
from the beginning of our marriage through having two kids, um, we were able to really be involved. And part of that was because of the Catholic worker that we were in when our, when our two children were really small. Um, but as our family's grown and our children are a little older and um, opportunities changed or, or circumstances changed. Yeah. We, there were so many years of just wishing that we were out doing, doing the work that we saw other people doing. And it really took a conversion of heart to, to accept that this is the calling that God has for us right now and that it's not forever. And that doesn't mean we can't do anything. We can do little things here and there outside of our home. Um, but to give, <coughs> sorry, to give um, dignity to the work of hospitality towards our children, hospitality in um, saying yes to welcoming five children um, and hospitality in the day in and day out, finding Jesus in them and in their 1000 requests for water. And, you know, thinking about Jesus <laughs> saying, you give one of these little ones a glass of water, you give it to me, you know, and like, it's just a total rewiring of, again, I think really this Western sense of, um, productivity and accomplishment and, and what makes your life worthy. And I think just the spiritual practice of being fully available to the people who are right in front of you are really all God is asking of us, whether that's in our home or out, you know, pioneering some great community development project. It's just the next thing. And so kind of making our peace with finding um, a balance. And, and we are, we are involved in some, we are involved in a Catholic worker. We do have friends of, of, you know, different socioeconomic classes and things like that. But, but for the most part, our family life is centered around our home. And so it's been a, a healing thing and also a, um, an in invitation for me really to see it as that and to see it as, um, oh, not just obedience to God, but like this outpouring of, um, of a life lived for the gospel, like that, that this is just a valid, just as valid of a way to do that as, you know, the things I did maybe in my early twenties that felt probably more romantic at the time. Yeah. I like what you said, um, of being kind of available to people right in front of you. Mm -hmm. And I think that I think that really says um, it points to like the different like the different vocational paths we all have. Uh, you know, like so folks that you know, single folks, folks that are married without kids, you know, uh, folks that are a little older and their kids have already left, and um, just being yeah, like being available to whoever's in front of you at the time. And mm -hmm. I think it's important. Mm -hmm. I um, one thing that really struck me as I was going through your book, uh, you're constantly pointing to these other uh, great authors. Um, I was like, wow, she's, she's so well-read. How does she get all these, all these people in this book? Um, and uh, I wonder, is there anyone like in particular that was important to your own formation, someone that you might encourage mm -hmm. listeners to, to check out? Gosh, there's been, there's been several. Um, I wanted to, I wanted to kind of point to use the book to point to other um people who are doing important work. And I, and I was trying to only use women was, was my one uh, parameter for myself and to, to include some diverse voices, both like religiously diverse and racially diverse. And I, I feel like I succeeded in that, but yeah, it, there's like a lot of like 
you could just check out all of the <laughs> all of the the bibliography from the library. Um, but no, I think for me, there's just been so many. It's hard to. I mean, Sumant Kid has been has been a big one. I mean, and she mostly writes fiction, um, at least these days. But her earlier works too really helped me. The Dance of the Dissident Daughter helped me break down a lot of this tough tough things to think about as far as patriarchy and religion. Um, Mirabai Starr, I really love her work. Um, she's a Jewish woman who translates the works of saints and mystics. And um, I just love her unique perspective on them. Um, let's see who else. Dr. Christina Cleveland, she's got a book coming out in the spring called God is a Black Woman, and she is amazing. Um, so I've, I've learned a lot from her. So yeah, just kind of taking things along the way. Um, Joyce Rupp, I quote a few times in the book, I think I really, um, really love her work too. So yeah, that's a few of them. Nice. All right. So everyone has their Christmas list ready now. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um, so, so for last question, I promise. Um, you know, and, and I don't think you're alone in this at all. Uh, there's a real hyper-masculinity to uh, St. Ignatius uh, in his writing, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and he's coming from a certain time and place. Um, but I wonder if you might leave our, our listeners, our Ignatian-inspired listeners, um, with, with a, a thought or two on how you uh, approached Ignatian spirituality um, or how you, how you wrestle with it now um, through this, this lens of empowered feminine spirituality. That, yeah. that, that you've written about well i have to give a massive shout out to that book that you recently recommended to me the spiritual exercises reclaimed oh you already read it wow <laughs> no, i haven't finished it but i'm in it i've ordered it and i'm i'm a few chapters in it and it's just like oh i wish i had this when i was going through the exercises it would have helped yeah. me so much it's really um, good i actually like said like sent a, a screenshot of it to the spiritual director who led the exercise i was like Women need to have this. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting because there is a lot of that masculine language and, and um, some of the illustrations that he uses. But I think the essence of it is actually really feminine in that it's very much intuitive. It's very much um, paying attention. And I think that those are qualities that have really made sense as I've kind of tried to, to get back in touch with, um, yeah, with what it means to have a feminine spirituality, what it means to relate to God in my womanhood. And that's been a big part of it. And I think, um, it was actually the, the spiritual exercises that first gave me permission on my journey to be able to do that. Cause I, I saw that there is like this, this ancient path that says it's okay. And that's what I needed at the time was, was someone to give me permission. And St. Ignatius did that to, um, to pay attention to how I really felt to, to take seriously the questions that I really had when I read scripture and, um, to trust what, what came up in my gut along the way to explore those things and to not be afraid to bring them into prayer and bring them to God, even the hard stuff. So, um, yeah, I think it, I think that they, it's both and I would say. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, with anything, right. You gotta work through the weird language of the time, <laughs> Yeah. but yeah, it's just, you know, Ignatius always seems so concerned with getting out of the way and facilitating an experience between kind of creator and, and, yeah. and person. Right. And right. Um, yeah, that, no, that book you mentioned, I mean, it, for the full title is what spiritual exercises reclaimed 
uncovering liberating possibilities for women. But I, I found it just incredibly helpful in thinking about any anyone who's not kind of in the the privileged lens of of society because it's all about remembering people have different experiences and people, you know, yeah. what what's in your personal story, um, right. you know, that I might have missed. Well, Shannon, this has been a lot of fun. I uh, I hope you'll come back sometime. I hope so too. And for for your next book, any any uh, what's what's next on the docket? Do you have any new uh, projects? Um, I do, but I can't tell yet. Oh man! All right. Well, <laughs> no breaking news today, but uh, yeah. maybe maybe next time. Well, and then folks, of course, should know that you write uh, the Everyday Ignatian column at Jesuits.org. So hopefully, uh, if they haven't checked those out, they will uh, they will scurry over there now. Um, yes. And I contributed to the Advent series that they should sign right. up for. Jesuits.org slash Advent. You're right. Absolutely right. It's a good opportunity for a plug. (laughs) (laughs) Awesome. All right, Shannon. Well, have a happy, happy Thanksgiving. Thank you so much for chatting with us and we'll talk to you again. Thanks for having me on. Happy Thanksgiving. AMDG is a production of the Jesuit Conference of Canada and the United States and recorded at our headquarters in Washington, D.C. The show is edited by Marcus Bleach and our theme music is by Kevin Lasky. The Jesuit Conference communications team is Marcus Bleach, Mike Jordan-Lasky, Megan Leapsch, Becky Sindelar, and me, Eric Clayton. Connect with the Jesuits online at Jesuits.org, on Twitter at, at @JesuitNews, on Instagram at WeAreTheJesuits, and at Facebook, facebook.com Jesuits. Sign up for weekly email reflections by visiting Jesuits.org weekly. If you or someone you know might be called to discern a vocation to the Jesuits, connect with a Jesuit vocation promoter at BeAJesuit.org. Drop us an email with questions or comments at media at Jesuits.org. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as St. Ignatius of Loyola may or may not have said, go and set the world on fire. <laughs>